Father, we we understand from your word that that work predates what's wrong with the world. It's it's part of the plan and intention and how we express not only our humanity but the image of God itself. And so we know that this is vital and important to understand um, for all people. And I pray that as we talk today, it would be um, enlightening both for those who are attending, um, encouraging for them as well. But beyond that, I pray that um, that for for our church and for us as individuals, uh, we would do a better job of supporting um, uh, those in all lines of work and connecting the work that they're doing to the work of your kingdom, connecting the work that they're doing to um, your character. And we, we just ask that this, uh, this time you would be present um, and working because we know that since the beginning you, you Father, and, and you, Jesus, have been working. And so uh, we just ask that you'd be here in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Um, so the last few years I took some time and I read through uh, the written works of Martin Luther. And um, as I did so, I kept encountering this rediscovery of vocation that was essential to the understanding of Martin Luther. Um, you know, his his world had been broken very strongly into two categories within Christendom. There was the priesthood, and then there was the not priesthood. And he, um, in recognizing the priesthood of all believers, that ministry wasn't just something for the few or for the specialized, but something for all Christians, also recovered this idea of vocation. And so um, he felt that God used the work of the milkmaid just as equally, although differently, as the priest. Um, and he even recognized that much of the way that God acts in our life is through what he called the masks of God, which usually tied into vocation. And so when we pray that God would protect our city, he does that in the masks of the policemen who protect our city. When we pray, give us our daily bread, that comes from the hands of not just farmers, but delivery trucks and bakers, and, and all of that is the work of God in answering our prayer. And so it's, it's really stirred up in me a desire... Um, kind of afresh to really be a church that thinks through broadly vocation and doesn't define ministry merely in um, in the accoutrements of what all Christian life should be like evangelism and worship um, but recognizes the fact that love your neighbor is one of the two greatest commandments and that can be fulfilled in our work that anything we do that um, takes care of people pursues, pursues human flourishing um, cultivates uh, and makes visible the goodness that God has created in this world. All of those things um, are and should be seen as ministry. And so, as a pastor, um, I really want to um, develop for myself a better understanding of how to walk this out and see this in different areas. And I also want to do a better job of helping people connect the dots in their, in their own line of work. Um, in terms of the what of today... Um, what I'd like to do is hear from our speakers. I'm grateful that all of you joined us. Um, and I'd also like to kind of discuss directly on the cutting edge of that aspect of what it looks like to support and encourage this understanding within within the church. Um, uh, I kind of feel like 
today is clearly primarily for me and for Matt as pastors, because we're the majority, we're half of the audience. Um, but, uh, but I'm just trusting, you know, even when we're faithless, he remains faithful. So, so I'm I'm excited about today, and I'm, I'm glad to hear. I was hoping Al that you would you would open us up and share first. Be happy to do that. Okay. Uh, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? I know you met most of us. Yes. My name is Al Arisman. <coughs> I um, came to the Seattle area in 1969 uh, to join the Boeing Company as a research mathematician. I was a Christian at the time. I'd been raised in a Christian home. But it had never really occurred to me to connect uh, the work I did with my faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, evangelism, yeah. Acting ethically, yeah. But that was about it. I'd never really thought about it more than that. It was about 1980 that I was driving to work at Boeing, and I heard a man interviewed on the radio. His name was Wayne Alderson. And uh, he was a vice president of a steel company. And he said God had called him to that work, and he developed a case for how that worked out. I was so taken by that that on the way home from work that day, I uh, stopped and bought the story of his life. My wife was very gracious, and after dinner, I sat down to read the book, and I read it all the way through. And the next morning, I called this guy. It took a little while to figure out how to do that, but I did call him. We had a long conversation, and he became a friend of mine until he died about four years ago. Um, It started me on a journey of asking the question, what does it mean to connect my faith and my work in a way that's far deeper than just evangelism, which is very important, representation, ethics, behavior, very important. Is there something more to it than that? And that journey fundamentally changed the way I did my work at Boeing. It affected the way I thought about the people. It affected the way I thought about the work that we did, the value of the work. Um, And this whole idea of purpose and meaning became a really uh, important, important thing to me. I stayed at the Boeing Company until 2001. And um, I quote, unquote, retired, (laughs) which I really didn't do. I left Boeing April 1st and started teaching at SPU April 4th. I probably would have put a little more time in between those if I did it again. Although I met a few students in that first quarter that I remained friends with and I'm really glad for that experience. And my wife and I decided that when I had a little more flexibility that we would focus time on issues there's a lot of really big problems in the world but issues of work and faith work and almost anything in that category I would say yes to and many other things I would say no to and my wife reminds me on a regular basis that the space is too big and that there are too many things to say yes to but it's been a really amazing uh, journey since then One of the really big uh, events came in 2007. I got invited to join a team called the Theology of Work Project. And for this team, 
It was headed by a former president of Denver Seminary, Haddon Robinson, and a former executive um, at uh, an aerospace company in the East. And together they decided to say, I wonder if, since it seems there's so much going on in connecting work and faith, maybe we ought to think about what does the scripture really have to say about this and put a solid biblical underpinning to it. One of those early meetings in 2007, we asked the question, could we write a commentary on the entire Bible and what it has to say about daily work? And that became the goal. And in 2014, late, we actually finished the first draft of the commentary. Uh, Genesis is pretty easy. It talks about work at the beginning. Uh, Matthew is pretty easy. There's a lot of wonderful illustrations. Colossians is easy. Psalm Solomon is a little more interesting, as is the book of Revelation, uh, Esther, Second uh, Samuel, and so on. Uh, but it was a wonderful journey. Our goal today on that project is to um, is to get this in front of churches, seminaries, to develop uh, Bible studies. We've got quite a few now out on this area. To develop devotionals, to look at worship, uh, and how can worship reflect this view of the whole of life as you were talking about Martin Luther. And so that's really the, the journey that I've been on. One of the realizations I came to, I think this was in 2000. Five. Um, my pastor asked if I would go with the missions pastor to um, meet with a missionary down in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And I thought this would be a, an interesting opportunity, but in keeping with the objective that I had, I said, in doing that, I would like to meet with some workplace Christians and see how they're thinking about this. The missionary set this up in a condominium, and I'll never forget that evening we walked in, and there were 30 people there that were gathered. They explained to us that a few years before, God had seemed to awaken them to the fact that maybe their work mattered to God. And they started meeting in different parts of the city, and it turns out there were eight groups that met weekly in different parts of Sao Paulo, just talking about what it meant that their work and they were Christians and they were at work and what does this really mean we got into this deep and long conversation that went until about midnight and I remember at the end um, someone said you know it was a gift of God that you came and helped us with this and I said it was a gift of God that I could observe that this is not anything that any human people or organizations are doing. This is the work of God, and it's happening all over the world. I had an opportunity to see one of these in uh, in Delhi, India, in 2015. I was invited to give a talk at an, uh, to a group, and 80, 90 people gathered on a regular basis exploring what it means to connect their work and their faith. And it's just stunning to me to see this is an area where God is at work, awakening us. 
I was giving a uh, a talk to a group of pastors in the Central African Republic. Uh, you've probably never heard of this country. It is one of the most corrupt and one of the poorest countries in the world. It's small, in the middle of Africa. For a lot of reasons, we got involved in doing some economic development and microfinance work there. In talking with these pastors, one pastor paused at the end of our conversation and he said, I get what you're saying, but tell me, which is more important to teach people to believe in Jesus so they go to heaven when they die or to teach them about discipleship in all of life. And um, I trust this was from God, but I, I said, you know, I used to work at the Boeing company and we built airplanes. And the question is kind of like saying, which wing of the airplane is more important on flight, the left wing or the right wing? The scripture teaches both. And the idea that we want to put one over the other is something that we, it makes sense to try and do, but often we can't do it. And I would like to say that let's hold what the scripture has to say. And so even in the Matthew 28 passage that is so often used in evangelism, go into all the world and preach the gospel. It doesn't say to make converts, it says to make disciples, and then it says teaching them to obey all that I have commanded them. And if the scripture is filled with this, we ought to be listening. So, um, that's the way I got involved in this stuff. And today I'm involved in um, a Christians and business organization that we... We meet monthly in Seattle down at uh, where Union Church meets. In KKO. Right. And once a month in Bellevue at Magianos, and once a month down at Tacoma. And we have a speaker, and we talk about this kind of thing, and I'm pretty deeply involved with Kairos and with the Theology Work Project and other kinds of things. And it's just exciting to see God at work in an area where we get to join him. We've also been involved with um, something called the Faith at Work Summit, where we've gathered people from all over the world just to ask, what is God doing in your area? How does this work across the world? We've had two conferences so far, one in Boston in 2014, one in Dallas 2016, and we're doing one in Chicago in 2018. So my involvement is with that, with Theology of Work Project and Kairos and writing and visiting, encouraging and learning, and there's so much to learn. What I wanted to share with you briefly is a few highlights out of the Theology of Work and then focus in on one area. And I'll try and do this in 20... 25 minutes to see where it goes. So, in going through the the scripture, let me just give you a couple of things that we've learned. I mean, there's so much to learn in in the scripture. And in fact, I've been making it a practice of trying to read through the Bible in less than a year, uh, kind of over and over again. And I read through it with this kind of thinking, and I have this old Bible that 
there's a big enough print so I can <laughs> I can read it when the light isn't great. And since it's an old Bible, I underline a lot. Uh, and all of this is a part of the of what um, what the theology work project is all about. So let me let me give you kind of a sampling of some things that you might not expect to see. For one thing, uh, one of our uh, participants from India, uh, L.T. Legendre, shared with me that he's doing a series of Bible studies in India on what he calls the bookends. He says, many people as Christians start with you're a sinner in need of a savior, Genesis 3, and end in Revelation 20, the coming judgment, and they leave out the frame, which is Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22. But the, the bookends set the context for everything in between. And so if you read Genesis 1 and 2, you see all kinds of different kinds of work. You see, in the beginning, God preached a sermon. Well, no. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you see the command to human beings to name the animals, to take care of the garden, to rule and have dominion. That's never been taken away, and it is still a part of the world in which we live. And in Revelation 21 and 22, there's this intriguing passage that a theologian from Gordon-Conwell pointed out. He said, in Revelation 21, it says, And the kings of the earth bring their splendor into the new Jerusalem. What is it that's a part of what we do that comes into the new Jerusalem? How is it that the work that we do every day has eternal value and what does that really look like? And Isaiah 60 gives a beautiful picture of this. We see a picture of the New Jerusalem and we see trade and we see gold and we see uh, travel and all these things. And I like to joke that in Isaiah 60, verse 17, I think it is, it says... Who are these that move from cloud to cloud? And maybe there's airplanes in heaven as well. <laughs> Probably not. But, but you do see the ships and the camels and the travel that they knew in that day. So the framing is really important. But Genesis 3 is really important as well because the fall suggests that our work is made difficult. So we're in this world now that is both, we can't be naive about it, we're not in the garden, we're not in the New Jerusalem. But the work is still important, but it is made difficult. And we experience this every day. And how do we live out what it is to recognize that this work has purpose and meaning before God, but also it is made difficult by sin, and it's so easy to point out the sin in others, but it starts in me. And so it's not just that stuff out there, but it's me that's contributing to this. And so we see in Genesis 3, it's a very important part of what it means to work in this interim time. Many more scriptures talk about this, but those are examples. Then in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, verse 8, 
It says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall work. It's a two-sided command. It's a command of work and rest, which is how we do our work <coughs> this side of the ball. And sometimes people we encounter want to work all the time. <laughs> they need the first part. Sometimes people think, well, my work gets in, or in the way of my holy pursuit. They need the second part. But we need the whole thing together. And then some really interesting instruction in Deuteronomy chapter 17. There's an instruction to a king. Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 to 20. It says to the king, write out the scripture so that it will be real in your life and so that it can affect the decisions that you make every day of your life. And so this idea of being centered in the scripture and having this as the foundation for decisions is very real and it's the direct instruction in Deuteronomy 17. Or what do we mean by good leadership? This one I came across just recently, and I'd like to read this to you. Second Samuel twenty-three, and uh, he writes, "The God of Israel spoke. The, the Rock of Israel said to me, When one rules over men in righteousness.'" When he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after the rain that brings the grass from the earth. And what a picture of leadership, which is not about beating people and the submission or having a title or being uh, uh, privileged, but one who brings light and encouragement and encourages the growth of others. And I thought, wow, buried here in Second Samuel 23 is this instruction on how we might think about leadership. Then you go to Proverbs, and of course that's filled with instruction on leadership, but let me, let me take one example. Proverbs 11.1. 1. It says, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord. How many ways do we have a false balance today? It's easy to say, well, we don't actually use balances with weights anymore, but we do. Whenever we keep the books, run a spreadsheet, do almost anything, even have a transaction, what is a fair arrangement between two? And God is saying a false balance is an abomination. We had a finance manager from the Boeing Company come and give a talk at our Christians in Business group. And he spent a fair amount of time developing what a false balance looks like in finance in the 21st century. And it's pretty convoluted, but it's false nonetheless. And then he said... But most of us don't look at the second half of the verse, which is, a just weight is his delight. And did you ever think, when you do a fair transaction, that you delight the heart of God? 
Mm-hmm. It's a stunning idea. And it's right there in the scripture for us to awaken and to see and to learn about. Let me take just a couple more. Mm-hmm. Isaiah. <coughs> Isaiah 58. The people are complaining to God and they say, Why have we fasted and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? What do you think God's answer might be to that? (coughs) Why does God not hear? Our worship. Verse <coughs> He actually says this at the last part of verse three. Yet on the day of your fasting. You do as you would please, and you exploit all your workers. Wow. There's a connection between our work and our worship. And that God wants to see our whole lives under his lordship. Not just looking good on Sunday and going out and doing what we want to do on Monday. In the 70s, I had my first inkling of this. I've never been able to find the magazine. I hope it's not a figment of my imagination. But it's, it had a picture on the cover of a man standing behind the uh, fish counter. He had a big fish on the scale. He had a one-way sticker. If any of you were around in the early 70s, you knew this was the time of the Jesus people. and The one-way and the... And he had a, a big smile on his face and he had his finger pointing up and his thumb was on the corner of the scale. And it captured an idea that sometimes we live these disconnected lives. And this idea that all of this is a part. And so, exploiting our workers, God doesn't hear our worship when we do this. Isaiah 58 itself is just rich in the whole development of an understanding of our work before God and it's a beautiful a beautiful picture. Let me take a couple more illustrations. Uh, all I'm trying to suggest is that the Bible is filled with instructions about our work and the link between our work and our relationship with God. In Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes, I had the privilege for the first time in my life of being in Israel in, uh, in May. And we had a trip to the Sea of Galilee, which I think was the center for me of the whole time. And being up on the mountain where Jesus gave the Beatitudes and thinking about the Beatitudes. But Jesus says at the end of the passage, I think it's Matthew 5, 18 or so, he said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. What we do every day before a watching world is a picture of who we are before Christ. 
and a representative representation of who he is. The whole of Matthew 5 is brilliant. The Beatitudes, a colleague of mine uh, wrote a book entitled Becoming Good, which developed the Beatitudes. And I've used the Beatitudes, uh, even at Boeing, in talking about organizational culture and what it was that we want for a good organizational culture. Uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, that's humility. Blessed are those who mourn, that's accountability. Blessed are the meek, that's power under control. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, that's excellence. Blessed are the merciful, that's forgiveness. Blessed are the pure in heart, that's integrity. Blessed are, are uh, the, those who would collaborate, uh, who would share with others, that's the collaboration that we need. And blessed are those who are persecuted, that's a reminder that it'll always be difficult and perseverance through persecution is part of this. I actually took those eight and laid them out in a kind of a secular language and presented them to my staff and we talked about them. And then I said, well, you guys know I'm a Christian. And I just got to tell you, these are the words of Jesus. And there was a, a bit of silence in a staff meeting at the Boeing Company. And one guy said, well, I'd like a copy of that anyway. <laughs> uh, there are principles that are deeply rooted in in our character and who we are and who God calls us to be that actually work wherever you go. In Romans 13, I'll quote this from memory uh, from the King James Version, but you could read it in a more modern translation. Paul says, The night is far spent, the day is at hand, so live as in the day. This is really meaningful to me in this sense that it says, no, Christ has not returned. Yes, we're still living in a broken world. But lean into it. Lean forward. Bring the kingdom of God into the world where you now live. Live as in the day. <clears throat> so a challenge for us to live out these principles in a way that would really honor God, even though it's not perfect and we ourselves are not perfect and finally I'll mention one other because this gives me a tie into something I'd like to develop just a bit more in Colossians 3 anyone who's been involved in the work and faith movement at all has heard the verse Colossians 3 whatever you do work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Mm -hmm. What's beautiful about that, though, is the context. Who is that instruction addressed to? Slaves. Slaves. Slaves obey your masters. So I, can, I have been in situations where a person said, you know, you had a really neat job at the Boeing Company running an R&D center. Uh, you had a neat job at South Pacific University. Uh, but you don't understand my job. You don't understand my boss. You don't understand the work I do. 
He said, well, you may be right. I may not understand everything about your work. But this instruction from Paul was written to slaves, the very bottom of the ladder. And so I would encourage you to say, no matter what your work, it is the Lord Christ that you're serving. And it makes a huge difference actually how we think about our work not just the circumstances of our work this is easier to say sitting here in a church than it is to say in the heat of the moment but the reminder and the challenge to each of us is to live that out in the moment so that's a very high-level view of a quick run through the Bible. Um, but if you wanted to see the commentary, I can give you a... I'll give you a, uh, a little card that's just got the website on. You go to the website, theologywork.org, click on it. On the front page is something called the commentary. Click on the commentary. All the books of the Bible come up. You click on a book of the Bible, and you can see, oh, here, there is some insight as to what this part of the Bible has to say about our daily work. And it's, uh, it's amazing. But I'd like to transition into one other thing because a lot of the Bible is, uh, is narrative. A lot of the Bible is here's a uh, picture of this person or that person we think of the story of Esther, the story of Daniel, the story of Abraham, the story of Nehemiah. What do we learn from a narrative? And uh, so I want to give you a quote from Dallas Willard and then take you through one narrative, just as an illustration. Uh, Dallas Willard said in his book, Hearing God, if we are really to understand the Bible record, we must enter into our study of it on the assumption that the experiences recorded there are basically the same time type as ours would have been if we had been there. Those who lived through those experiences felt much as we would have if we had been in their place. In other words, he said, enter their world and see if you can live as they might have lived. So, I'm going to back up and tell you a brief story, and then I'm going to do one narrative, and then I'll wrap up, see if I can get this done in a brief time. It was 1987. I had been thinking about this work and faith stuff for a while, but it was my absolute worst day at the Boeing Company. Um... There was a person in the company that I had supported, uh, my whole organization had supported for about a year. He had done spectacularly well, and in a large part, which he acknowledged due to the work that we had done for him, he was trying to, uh, he was a salesperson for the computer services division of the Boeing Company, and he was trying to open up the oil patch. He was down in Dallas. I can't tell you the number of times I went to Houston, Dallas, Tulsa, giving talks to oil companies about how they could use 
the supercomputer, the Cray supercomputer we had was the newest and most powerful thing in the world and we were showing them how they could use this for oil exploration, development, and how the power of this thing would give them great capabilities. He did so well that he got noticed throughout the company and so well that he got selected to go to Stanford for a year and so well that he got brought back as a new executive and his new executive position was to be my boss and his first act was to demote me. It was the most discouraging day of my time at Boeing and I'm not sure I handled it really well. Um, I went to work with an R&D organization for a guy who had a high school education and ran the operations of our computer center and he didn't like what we did, he didn't appreciate it and uh, ultimately uh, into that year I got a call from a headhunter to be a company executive at another company and I listened and I went back and interviewed and I ultimately decided not to take that job and to stay at Boeing and to try and do my work is unto the Lord. And one day in November, two things happened. Uh, the first thing was that this new boss got reassigned and um, he wasn't working out very well. Not just for me, but for others. Second thing that happened was I went to church on Sunday and I heard a sermon. Third thing that happened was that the new boss's boss that came in, he got fired, his boss got fired, and it was the new boss's boss that I had worked with years before, and I had a meeting set up with him on Tuesday. On Sunday, I went to church, and I heard this sermon on the life of Joseph. And Joseph was in prison, you may remember, and he told the chief butler that he would be going back to Pharaoh, and he said, uh, remember me when you go to Pharaoh, because I don't belong here in prison. So on Tuesday, I went into my new boss's boss, and I did something I would not recommend to anyone. <laughs> um, I think it was seeing that I had no other choices, but I said to my to Orv, I said, Orv, um, on Sunday I was in church, and I heard a sermon on Joseph, and it's relevant on two counts. On one count, Joseph was in prison and in slavery for 13 years. And during this time, he worked really hard. And he worked honorably and, uh, and did his work well, but nonetheless, he was in prison. And I said, uh, Orv, um, for the last nine months, I've been in prison. We didn't deserve this. It's had an impact on our organization. We've done our best. We've actually done some really good things, and I'll show you some of the work we've done. But we've had 25% attrition from people who just didn't want to take this kind of environment. And I think this is difficult in the Boeing Company. Second thing I learned from the sermon was that Joseph said to the chief butler, you let them know that I'm here falsely accused. And, or I'm telling you that I'm falsely accused. I don't belong in prison. And can you do something about it? At the end of the meeting, he said, well, let me think about this and I'll get back to you. And in two weeks, 
he announced a reorganization that changed my life at the Boeing Company in every sense imaginable. The opportunities that I had after that were amazing. And the only fallout that came from my discussion with him was that every time he saw me, he called me preacher. <laughs> but he knew before that that I was a Christian, and and it was okay. I don't recommend people doing that in a place like Boeing or Amazon, but it connected me with the story of Joseph. And so from about 1989 or so until the present, I've been thinking about Joseph. I've been spending time reading his story over and over again. And I've been asking the question, what can we learn from the life of Joseph about a life of work and faith? I'd like to briefly tell you my conclusions. And then I'd like to um, tell you that I ultimately wrote a book on this topic. Um, And... um, Here's the, here's the essence of what I learned. Early on, Joseph was the 11th son of 12, his father Jacob. His father Jacob was a man of God, but he lived what I would consider a bifurcated life. On the one hand, he worshipped God and gave tithes to God. And on the other hand, He was one of the shrewdest and most devious business people I have encountered until the 21st century. He he tricked his brother out of his birthright. He tricked his uncle out of his possessions. His uncle tricked him as well. I mean, everything about him, he accumulated this vast fortune. I, I said that he would be a follower of Milton Friedman maximize shareholder values subject to the constraints of the law see if I can stay within the boundary of the law but otherwise do everything possible to do as well as I can and Joseph was homeschooled so he was educated through his father on business he was given opportunity by his father in leadership He had dreams of a great future. And as I encounter younger people, talk with students about this at SPU a lot. You have dreams for a future. How can God use these dreams to shape who you are and who you could become? So Joseph was shaped by these dreams. He wasn't very wise in the way he talked with his brothers about them. In fact, uh, you could regard him as arrogant at that point in his life. Or maybe immature might be the nicer way to say this. But he had dreams of a future of leadership. He had an education in business. How was God going to use that? Well, in ways that are kind of surprising. He went out as his father deputized him to search for his brothers. And he was wearing that coat of many colors that was a position of favoritism. Just as parenthesis, one of the other things I've done over the last 20 years is I've interviewed business leaders across the world. I've had the opportunity to interview some really amazing people, CEOs of very large companies globally, locally. 
and uh, you know it, trying to learn from their stories when I would do the interviews with them I would read everything I could about them and then I look for gaps in their stories and I would ask questions so just parenthetically I'm looking forward to interviewing Joseph someday and I've already got 15 questions that I have that I want to ask him and one of the questions is why did you wear that coat when you went looking for your brothers because isn't that kind of like wearing a red coat to a bullfight well, Joseph's career took an interesting <coughs> turn. He sold as a slave. And what does he do in Potiphar's house? He became so trusted by his boss that the boss left everything in his control except the food he ate. And I mean, it's a pretty amazing confidence. And I think it's the fact that God had called Joseph to his work and he recognized that his work was important before God. But the twist in the story is the first encounter of sexual harassment in the Bible where his boss harassed him and he was falsely accused and now he's in prison. So I want you to look at his career trajectory. Second in command in his father's house looking for his brothers. Second in command in Potiphar's house as a slave. And now he's in prison. What does he do? I guess I would probably have a little period of sulking for a while. What did I do to deserve this? Maybe he did. We don't see that, though. We see him getting to work and the jail prisoner identifying his role and saying, wow, I'm going to give you a lot of responsibility. And he did. So now he's second to command in prison. And he's grown in his ability to see things through others' eyes. He didn't do that with his brother and his father. But he saw two prisoners and he recognized they were downcast and he said, what's going on in your life? And it's a sign that maybe he had matured a bit. Well, he tells the chief butler and the chief baker their fate from their dreams. And uh, he says to the chief butler, will you remember me when you get back to Pharaoh? But there's this verse at the end of the 40th chapter of Genesis. It says, but the chief butler forgot about Joseph. And the 41st chapter opens two full years later. I want to talk to Joseph about those two years because we don't know anything about them. But my guess is that many people thinking who are Christians or in the workplace are in that position. It's really tough. And I think the idea that work and faith is about the joyful things that we do before God being having meaning, maybe the meaning is God shaping us to be who he wants us to be. And we shouldn't miss it, even though we don't enjoy it. And so part of the Joseph story helps us understand life at the bottom and part of the faith at work movement is a person who doesn't really see anything in their work. It's just drudgery. But maybe God is using them even in that role as Joseph was being used. Well, then comes a dramatic shift. If this were a movie, you could hear drum rolls at this point when the Pharaoh has this dream and 
his wife can't deal with it. And the chief butler, I can just see him. He says, wow, I forgot. I blew it. There's this guy in prison, and he told me my dream, and he told me to remember him to you, and I just forgot. And it says, and Pharaoh called for Joseph. Now, a big shift. What do you do when you have an opportunity? I love looking at this part of the story because the first thing Joseph did, really I do like to talk to my students about this, is he shaved and he changed his clothes. What does that have to do with the story? Well, Joseph demonstrated respect for his boss, acted professionally. It's amazing to read that I try and set my students up to say, what would you do if you were in this position? And you'd say, well, I could tell you your dream, but let me tell you about my circumstances and let's work out a deal here. But that's not what he did. He just listened to the Pharaoh and responded. All of the Pharaoh's key guys were standing around him as he had this conversation. How much would you say you know, office politics don't just happen at Boeing and at Microsoft and at Amazon and any other company, including churches, mm-hmm. but they happen everywhere. And Joseph gave a model of how to kind of blow past that and be as straightforward as he could in presenting the case. He went way beyond the question that Pharaoh asked him. And he laid out not only here's what your dream means, but here's what you ought to do about it. And he filled in the details that are pretty amazing from a strategic point of view. In fact, I've analyzed this as a modern, using a SWOT analysis, and he laid out the strengths and weaknesses and opportunities and threats that were in that position and said, okay, here's how we maximize our strengths and minimize our weaknesses and laid out the whole case. Beautifully done. And then comes the next surprise. Pharaoh says to him, okay, I'd like you to lead that project. Not only that, I'm going to give you a clothing allowance, a compensation package, a place to live, authority that goes way beyond anything any human can deal with. In fact, he said, um, no one will lift a hand or foot in all of Egypt without your permission. Now we see the other end of the spectrum. The problem that a modern business leader has, way too much power, way too much authority, way too much compensation. And what do you do in those circumstances? And I think it's important to read the story very carefully and see what Joseph did to protect himself in that circumstance, just like he did at the bottom of the ladder. Um, I found in doing some reading for this, let let me read you one other quote, because every now and then a modern person can get into this same kind of position. Tiger Woods found himself in a position when he was in the top of the golf world. And we remember, perhaps, if you follow golf at all, the affair that he had, the things that he did. And he has never returned to prominence again. It's really a a sad and difficult story. But right after this event happened, he said, 
I knew my actions were wrong, but I convinced myself that normal rules did not apply to me. I felt I'd worked hard my entire life and deserved to enjoy all the temptations around me. I felt I was entitled. I've come to the conclusion that Joseph at this point in his life was the most vulnerable of any point in his life. And I've often said to pastors, sometimes it's easy to say to people, if you've lost a job, if you've had an illness, these pains, come forward and we'll pray for you. But have you ever said, if you've had a promotion, come forward and we'll pray for you? Because you're really vulnerable then. And what I see in Joseph at this point in his life is four things that Joseph did. And these are instructions for us when we're at the peak, just like we need instructions at the bottom. First of all, he centered his life in God. And you know, if Jesus Christ is Lord, we're not that special. (laughs) And there's something about owning God as preeminent that reminds us of who we are in his presence. And Joseph, at every opportunity, reminded, he reminded Pharaoh, I can't do this, but God can. And it's a reminder to us of who we are before God. Second thing is, he had a family, he had a wife, and he had two boys. And my thinking, uh, I can't read this in the text, but he would go home at night, These two boys were kind of like my two boys. They didn't care anything about what happened during the day. You're dad now. There's something about the ordinariness and being rooted in family in the ordinary is important. I was giving a talk in Ukraine one time and a group of us were there and at the end of a series that we'd done for three days with this group of people, they asked us to wait outside and when we came in, they were standing and cheering. And I said to the person next to me, on Tuesday when I get home, I carry out the garbage. (laughs) We need a reminder of the ordinariness of life and that we are not special, even when we're put in a position of being special. The third thing that we see in Joseph is the work that he had to do. He had purpose. He had a challenge. He had a 14-year project. Outside of the Boeing Company, I've never really heard of many 14-year projects. Of It's really easy to get excited on the first day of a project. It's really hard in the eighth year to maintain that commitment. And yet, he had this 14-year project. And the seriousness of it that affected lives of people was really important. And finally, what we need, and I don't think Joseph had this, is a group of colleagues that we can say, here's a circumstance I'm in. Remind me, what do you think about this? And uh, I don't see that I'm going to ask Joseph. That's one of my questions. How did you get some counsel? Because there was a place later where I think he needed it, and he didn't have it. And I'm not quite sure how his action would fit. But nonetheless, we see these things that Joseph did deliberately, at least the first three, his God, his, the ordinariness of his life, and his purpose. His corner office was not a reward. 
it was a platform from which to do his job. And I think a reminder of that is really helpful. So at the top or at the bottom, we get it from Joseph. Let me conclude with this, that in the end, his brothers were talking to him. Their father died, and they began to worry that maybe Joseph forgave us while the father was alive, but now it's not. Now we're going to get it. So they do something which I find really humorous in the 50th chapter. They go to him and they say, before our father died, here's what he said. I think they just made that up. I really do. I think they were trying to protect themselves. Joseph gave a brilliant answer. He said, you intended this for evil, but God intended it for good, for the saving of many people. He found his calling in life in the work he did in Potiphar's house, in the work he did in prison, as God shaped him, and in the work he did as the CEO of the Egyptian International Food Company. And he did it with an amazing insight that helps us to see from this narrative that God had called him to this position. And I think sometimes we reserve calling for being a pastor or calling for being a missionary. But I think we can be called to be an entrepreneur. We can be called to be at Amazon. We can be called to be a nurse. We can be called in so many other ways to carry out God's work in the world. And this narrative of Joseph is one that I've just kind of embedded my life in. And um, I'm looking forward to having my interview with him uh, someday to fill in the rest of the story. So I think you can do this with the story of Daniel. You can do it with the story of Nehemiah. You can do it with the story of Abraham. You can do it with the story of Jonah. I mean, all of these are Esther, Ruth. All of these are narratives that connect with the work world that allow you to see an ordinary person living out an ordinary life in circumstances that relate to us that we can understand. So, I would encourage all of us, and I apply this first to myself, to keep reading in the scripture and keep gaining new insight as to what is God saying to us about the whole of our lives and about the context in which we're living out our lives. And even the body of Christ is a reminder to us that we're not all the same. One is a hand, one is a foot, one is an eye, one is an ear. Together we're accomplishing God's purposes. Now one is a pastor, one is a missionary, one works at Amazon, one works at Boeing, one runs a coffee shop, one stays at home with their kids. All of them together accomplishing God's work in our world. So, I hope that's helpful. <coughs> and, uh, I, and I'll... Uh, I'll conclude with, uh, with that. As, uh, read the scripture. Think about what it is to say about our daily work. I'll give you the reference to the project so you can look up some of these things yourself. And I can give you a reference to the book on, uh, on Joseph. So. Was it, uh, what was the portion of Joseph's life that you were 
you weren't quite sure that he made it. Was it about the, the land sales? Yeah. Yeah, so one of the things that you see if you study the story carefully is that came to him with this problem about um, uh, running out of money. And what it, what it said, I can build an argument for why what Joseph did was correct. I mean, the people of Egypt should have seen the collection of grain. They should have wondered what's going on here, and do we have a responsibility? Uh, and I relate this to some uh, friend of mine is a real estate person who uh, said during the boom times, 2002 to 2007, people were uh, living higher than they'd ever lived before. But rather than saving for a future, they leveraged everything. And there were a lot of really tragic results that came about when the fall came in 2008. Uh, should we be more observant? And I think, yes, the answer is for sure. And maybe that's what Joseph saw. But maybe there's another way he could have handled it. And I'd love to have seen him say, let me talk with some colleagues about this instead of just immediately rendering his solution. <laughs> so, I don't know. Uh, I can build an argument, and I did in the book, for why I think he actually did something that was probably useful and good, even though it had difficult consequences. But I'd love to see a little more engagement with others <laughs> around that particular issue. Any other? You know, it's interesting. I, I, as you were talking and sharing examples, obviously triggered in me some of the experiences I've had recently and, and, and you know, a very similar you know, instance to your nine month right. um, <coughs> but the thought of um, and with Joseph the lack of a, a support community or a, a group of um, either you know, a Christian men or women that a community that you would then go to and talk through some of this. Right? Mm -hmm. Am I am I off? Does it sound right? Um, or I don't know what to do. You know, let's pray about it and see what, what comes. Um, it's interesting because it it, it shows um, the deep relationship that he had, but the piece left out. I think is that where is that support system which I think um, in a way I I don't like the message that it sends on one hand yes we need to be deeply rooted and have those quiet times with the Lord and, and right. to be directed by Him but then it, it really sh paints a picture of that's it that's what you need to, it leaves out the fact that we really need to be in community right we need to be leaning on each other and seeking counsel with each other. And some people in some circumstances don't have that opportunity, and I think God can work with them there. Yeah. But I think whenever we can, we really need help. We have an incredible ability to delude ourselves. Um, I don't know if any of you have read the book by Daniel Kahneman called Thinking Fast and Slow, but it's an amazing... Uh, he's a... Uh, he won a Nobel Prize in economics for his work in the social sciences in how we think about things and make decisions. 
And his conclusion is that we think we're rational and we're really not. We respond to most situations from the patterns in our head. Yep. And if we're going to engage the rational thinking, uh, usually we do it to try and build a rational argument for why our intuitive response was correct. <laughs> 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 and, uh, and so this idea of we can delude ourselves easily and having someone alongside us is really helpful. So I, uh, I think he, he didn't have those circumstances, but there were places where it seemed like it might have helped him. I'm curious why you... Um I'm, uh, instead of pontificating on why, I wonder, I'm curious why you would not recommend your actions you took with oaths. Well, usually in a in a setting like Boeing, when you're having a serious conversation with your boss, you don't start with your uh, your church experience. Um, it may, it may well be. I, I mean, I would do it again if I were in the same circumstance. But I've seen people do this kind of unwisely who walk into a boss and immediately quote scripture to him without really reflecting on the context of where they are and being respectful of who that person is. So I think you need to act wisely. Uh, but there may be circumstances where it's okay and I, I don't regret doing that. Sure. Uh, but I, I just don't want people to get the impression that when you're a Christian in business that means you lead with scripture. I think you need to lead with wisdom from scripture and often support it with here's why. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you'll often get the question, well, why do you do this? Uh, I think that's a wonderful opportunity. Um, I, I have seen people abuse this in a way that I... They, Peter makes this interesting comment. He says, count it all joy when you suffer for Christ. And then here's my translation. I could find the exact verse, but my translation is... But be careful you don't suffer for your own stupidity. And he goes on to say various ways that you can actually act unwisely right. in the workplace. So I think sometimes when people tell me they're suffering for Christ, I think they're really suffering for not acting wisely. <laughs> so I just want to put that kind of yeah. caution out. Yeah, the interesting part of that story, of course, not being there and only hearing you retell it is... Um, I don't. I think that the context of scripture usage in that is really to paraphrase or to point into the conviction that you felt and the reason for bringing forth this issue, if you will. Right. It wasn't as a weapon against a decision that was made. Right. Right. And uh, those, yeah, those are very distinctly different things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I really appreciate how you mentioned the the danger that's inherent in promotion and success, and how often we don't, um, you know, actively come alongside and even give warnings. In Deuteronomy chapter eight, there's just one of those warnings where they're about to enter into the land, and 
God says, now when you get into the land and you're farming and you're prosperous, don't forget, remember the years in the wilderness, remember me lest you break my commandments. And, um, you know, it's easy to look at the wilderness and the promised land and say, this is the dangerous one. But right. it puts the emphasis there. Right. And I've seen in my own experience one one instance in particular, I remember a friend whose son, young son, maybe two or three, was diagnosed with cancer. And a pastor I knew who had lost a son to cancer just put his arm around him and he said, you and I need to have a talk. And I've just never forgotten that moment because it was so um, proactive. He, he didn't wait or make himself available. He's like, I, I know things that you're going to need. And, um, and I think it'd be great if we could see the same thing for this, that when people step into limelight and power positions, that older and wiser Christians would say, you and I need to have a talk. Here's, yeah. here's what you don't see coming. Yeah, there's another, there's a lot of these passages, but one that I've often quoted is in Second uh, Chronicles 26. Uzziah was a king. He was an inventor. He was a business leader. He was a captain. I mean, he was an amazing guy. And it says his fame spread far and wide, for he was greatly helped by God until he became powerful. But after he became powerful, his pride led to his downfall, and he became unfaithful to the Lord his God. I think um, not recognizing... uh, I mean, we've all experienced this at some level. You're in trouble... And you call on God. I can't do anything, Lord. You accomplish something. You say, "Wow, look at what I did!" <laughs> and you know, it's it's just uh, human tendency, I think, to to hold on to this at multiple levels. So. One other question along the lines of that that boring that boring time was: um, Can you look on those days where you were demoted and, and find the reasons? Not the reasons for unjustly being demoted, but maybe God's plan and all. For sure. Um, so I've actually concluded that as we think about connecting our work and our faith, I've got this listed here. I just want to make sure I don't leave things out. I think there's uh, quite a number of different reasons why it's important to connect our work and our faith. But um, one of them is evangelism. So we can meet people that otherwise don't know Christ and we can share in the right way. One is representation, so we can live out before God what it means uh, to act in a different way. One is service. How do we demonstrate that we are to be servants of all, whatever the position? One is meaning. God cares about the work itself. And a lot of Christians miss this one, that the work itself brings value. One is economics, not just my economics, but the economics for others. Mm -hmm. And one is character development. Mm -hmm. How is God using this work to shape me? And I I actually came to a strong belief that leadership later would have been less effective if I hadn't had that year of recognizing that God is the one who's 
sovereign overall, and it's not about me. Um, and I think, I think the same of Joseph. I I don't think Joseph could have led this project in Egypt without his time in prison. Um, you know, if I think of the guy that t- was telling his brothers about his dreams, that guy wasn't ready. Mm-hmm. He needed some work, and we all need some work. And um, we will all have some some periods. And sometimes, in a broken world, that's our career as well. I mean, think of the in Colossians, it was addressed to slaves. So, yeah. so I, I do think it's that character development part of our and and I think that we can get shaped by God in our character in the workplace in ways that will never happen in church uh, it's just it's a, a a way in which a tool that God can use in our lives <coughs> and then of course there's the other one which is the integration involved with life it isn't we're not all about work and we're not all about family and we're not all about worship on Sunday but it's a our life is a wholeness and some people talk about work-life balance and I don't like it for two reasons one is it suggests that work is not part of life which it is so I don't like work life and balance suggests you're going to find a perfect balance and you're not I guarantee you won't and so it's a constant recalibration mm-hmm. all of our lives and trying to think about the wholeness of mm-hmm. all that we mm-hmm. do before God. Yeah, it's interesting because I've used that, you know, being here uh, <coughs> the last two years, that very same thing where you get to the point where you're, where the, the idea of work-life balance then means if one encroaches more here, it's stealing from one or the other. And it's more of a work-life integration, right. and and because it's just that's the nature of it. You're going to take a call on a Saturday, mm-hmm. or you're going to need to return a couple of emails later on at night, and and if you don't have that perspective of well, it's, it's integration. It kind of flows. If it's still the balance thing, then you're feeling like that work at night is robbing something mm-hmm. else, and there's then the resentment and the additional things that, that come into it. And and I just I never liked the, the, the thought of that, right? So yeah, interesting. It's easy to pass off responsibility as well. It's the work that's stealing it. It's not you thinking mm-hmm. away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that just frees me up. Just saying that. Also, the flip there are boundaries too. So yeah, like, right. you know what I mean. Yeah. Like there has to be a tension. You know, a, a good tension of. Uh, yeah, balance can't be just a wholesale thrown away. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, I found um, thinking about it in a different angle. Um, the, <coughs> when it comes to ministry, capital M, uh, my line of work and family, you know, I face a lot of those boundaries. But the metaphor that the Bible uses for both of them is sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And so I have a tendency to be in danger of offering my family on the altar of sacrifice for the ministry, mm-hmm. or sometimes vice versa. And the way I find it's helpful for me to reorient is in both of those, I'm the one who's supposed to be on the altar. Mm-hmm. And that's a pretty good that's filter good. for getting a lot of those things off the table. There's a major difference between taking your family's time or getting up early so that you don't have to, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, um, and so I found that to be a good filter for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
I wanted to mention, um, you were talking about specifically the dark days of Joseph's life in evangelism, and there's a quote from Leslie Newbegin that's always stuck out to me. And in this passage, he's talking about why we as Christians need to partner with non-Christians in all sorts. And one of the things he says is this. Um, he says that our partners will discover that we do not invest our ultimate confidence in the intra-historical goals of our labors, but that for us the horizon is one that's both nearer and farther away than theirs. They'll discover that we're guided by something both more ultimate and more immediate than the success of the project in hand, and they will discover that we have resources for coping with failure, defeat, and humiliation, because we understand human history from the side of the resurrection of the crucified Lord. Um, and so what, what he's arguing here is that even in the midst of failure, when we navigate it in a way that's not idolatrous, where, where our lives aren't shattered in these things, um, that's a witness. Uh, it, it says there's things of greater value elsewhere. Um, and that's, that's part of this whole faith work paradigm is, is there's always the possibility to find our focus center, meaning, value, worth, security in our work in a way that's too ultimate. Um, and so sometimes those dark days, you just, you just navigate in a way that disarms the idols of the workplace. There's a guy named Steve Bell who runs a cabinet company in the, down in Auburn. Good friend and during the downturn when no one was buying cabinets in 2009. I called him and I asked him how his work was going because he really tried to do it in honor to God. And he said, I don't know where this is going, but I do know God is faithful and I want to be faithful to him during this period. And so right in the middle, he could uh, not, not know an answer and it was in the section that I was writing about Joseph being in prison and paralleling it with his prison experience and it's easy to look back on a circumstance and say here's how it turned out but it's harder in the middle of it and in life we're in the middle of it all the time Mm -hmm. I think that um, so I think I have some relationships in my workplace that are deeper to where we share in more of our personal lives, you know, just friends in the workplace. And even things not related to work as, as you know, my friend at work sees me walking through deep personal heartache. I mean, there's that proximity to each other as we're, as we're going through those things, too. Um, I think that's just... Um, another opportunity to kind of kind of what Justin was saying but also in a situation that you know I think she would expect me to be terribly discouraged you know and and as I find joy in the midst of that that's just one other I think opportunity for for us to yeah just even though it's not related to our work and I and I'm coming out of a period of not being in the workplace for a long time, so this is like a new thing. But mm-hmm. um, well, we're whole people at work. Mm-hmm. We're not right, right. We're not a job description. We're a person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just want to say before we move on, I I really appreciated your 
your, your words and it actually kind of goaded me and made me want to start yeah. and go and work on something right now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely. All right, well, let's go ahead and, and move forward.